You're listening to Parkway's podcast. You know, I'm a plan B person. The reason I'm a plan B person is because I never usually follow the directions and do it the plan A way. And uh, if any of you have ever seen me run a power tool or build something even from Ikea, you know that I'm usually a plan D, E, and F person as well. Uh, But this morning, I've entitled this message, The Church, No Plan B. And uh, there's a lot of views out in the world and even within the church about the relevancy or the purpose of the church. But I just want to tell you this, that, uh, oh man, that's messed up. There you go. I don't know, that's probably me. I came in and did it last night, so. uh, No, uh, you know, the church was Jesus' idea. The church uh, is Jesus... Okay, let me say this. Jesus' plan for the world will be fulfilled primarily through the church. It's not an afterthought. It's not a human agency, even though it's made up of human people. And if there's anything wrong with the church, it's because of us, not because of him and his plan and idea. But the church is God's agent to bring his will on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said this, he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so that's a powerful statement to make. And I I know that in my time as a pastor, I've often thought, yep, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But boy, those of us within the church will do a good job of messing it up, right? And yet it's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And the church will triumph because he will triumph. Amen. And that verse says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in ancient Eastern cultures, uh, the gates of a town or the gates of a city were more than an entranceway. The gates of a town or city was the place where they conducted their business. It's where they had their town hall meetings. It's where they made strategic decisions. It it was where their tribunals and their justice system uh, was carried out and enacted out. So the, the gates of a community... Uh, spoke of the authority and the plans and the schemes that a strategies that a community would have. So Jesus made this statement. He said that the greatest efforts and strategies and plans and designs that hell itself sets against his church would not prevail. And the church will triumph because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and he left his work and his ministry and his will to be enacted on earth through the church. So friends, the church will triumph because God will triumph, amen? And there's no plan B. And as we will see today, you and I are called to penetrate an unbelieving, increasingly hostile and cynical world with the message that Jesus loves them and has come to save them. Again, I'm not being doomsday, but we are in the last days. I believe the end time started when Israel became a nation again back in the 1940s. There has never been in history a dispersed people that have come back to their same homeland and settled that homeland and been recognized as a nation. And Jesus said that when his people came back and settled the land, look out because redemption is drawing near. That is the sign that we're in the end times. And my friends, it's the most exciting day for the church because in the last days, the Bible says, the glory of God would cover the earth and the Holy Spirit would manifest power like never before. But it's going to be dark days. 
there is going to be a price to pay for you and I in North America for being believers. I'm going to say that again. There is a cost that is coming for people who will stand on the word of God and live for Jesus Christ that is coming that we have never experienced before in our culture. And yet there's no plan B. Here's the thing. The church isn't plan A only. You're plan A. I'm plan A. Because you and I are the church. I think there needs to be a shift that takes place in how we think about the church. You see, what the Bible calls the Great Commission, Jesus gave uh, the blueprint that every follower or disciple of Jesus would follow until his return. I think the problem has become that what he has mandated for every disciple and every follower, we've relegated as the work, as the ministry, as the function of the organized church. Right now, what we're doing is we're meeting as the church, but we're also meeting as the organized church. We have structure. We have kind of uh, the way we do uh, governance, all of those things, right? But we have literally taken a command that Jesus has given to each one of us, and we've, in the last probably 40 years or so, made it part of what the organizational church does. And in doing so, uh, many believers think it's given them a pass at doing what Jesus has called us to do. We say, well, you know, I'll give to the ministry of the church, and then the church that I'm a part of will do that so I've done my part. You don't find that in Scripture. And so, the priorities that every disciple is intended to live by has become the work and responsibility of the few who do the ministry in the church. And I truly believe with growing conviction that we have to see the church not as a building or a place we go to, but who we are when we gather together and then leave being sent back out into the world as the representatives of Jesus. I think the prophetic word that Stan White brought a number of weeks ago when he said this will become an apostolic place where you will step into the role of, of the pastors and the teachers and the healers. I believe that that's always been God's purpose for the church. And I just think that he is reawakening the North American church to that reality. And, and the word that was brought is the essence of 1 Peter 2.9 that says, but you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And I really believe this is a congregation that wants to be the people that God wants us to be in these last days. I really believe that we are a people who are saying, Lord, whatever it costs us, whatever change it means, I am willing to step into what you have for us because, God, there is a banqueting table that's spread for us, and in order for us to be a part of it, we need to partake of what you have given us, and I think that we want to be part of that. I do. But it's going to mean a shift and a change as the Holy Spirit renovates us. So the command that Jesus had for his disciples before he left to return to heaven is the same mandate and commission that has been left to each one of us. Again, to be clear, we've always said that the Great Commission, and we're going to look at what that is, but the Great Commission is the marching orders of the church, going to all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to see how that's only part of the commission, but we've always said that is the mandate of the church. But it's the mandate of you. It's your commission. It's my commission. 
Because without you and without me, there is no church. So it's not the mandate primarily of the organizational church. In fact, I would go so far as to say the mandate of the organizational church, the Bible says, is to equip and train believers unto every good work of service. The Great Commission's mandate isn't meant to be a program that the church runs. It's meant to be what we do when we leave this place filled, equipped, our faith strengthened. Then the church, however many are here this morning, leave and go and infiltrate the world, fulfilling the Great Commission. I believe that when the church, when Steve, when I, when Jackie, when every person leaves and fulfills the Great Commission, we won't need to spend another cent on evangelism. Think about that. We'll always support world missions. We'll always support ministries. Well, I think this might challenge us this morning, and I hope you're okay with that. But again, challenges only come if we're going to follow through. If we're not going to follow through, then they're just words. But I really believe with growing conviction that the Great Commission is your commission. The Great Commission is my commission. And it was given to us by our Savior, Jesus. So what is a commission? A commission is a formal, written warrant granting the power to perform various acts or duties. A certificate conferring military rank and authority. It's also a command to act in a prescribed manner or to perform those prescribed acts. And it's authority to act for in behalf of or in place of another. A commission can finally be a task or matter entrusted to one as an agent for another. Now, I know you're not going to remember any of those. But the, all, the essence of all of those things are true. That's what a commission is. So let's find out together what this commission is that Jesus has given to us. And it's, it's actually found in five different places in the Bible. It's the last thing Jesus told his disciples before he was literally lifted up into heaven before their very eyes. And the... the each of the gospel letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the end of their letters, they give uh, a part of the commission that Jesus gave. They have different emphasis. And then in the first book of Acts, which is the continuation of the gospels, we see part of the commission. So we're going to break each one out and see what Jesus has called you and I to. And we're going to do this just very quickly. Fasten your seatbelts. Are you ready? Okay. I'll just take laughter as kind of like an amen, you know, kind of a Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some still doubted. Then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. By breaking down what he commanded his disciples to do, we're going to find two things. Number one, what we're called to do. And number two, what a true disciple looks like. Right? He's speaking to disciples. And the first thing he says is that disciples make disciples. So when we see what they're called to do, we discover who we're called to be. And in turn, what we're called to do. So disciples make disciples. Spiritual lives of Jesus' followers are meant to reproduce themselves in others. These were his first 11, and they were literally willing to lay down everything physically to follow Jesus. And that's what they did for three years. Now he was leaving, 
And he was sending them out as disciples to go and perpetuate the process by making other disciples. But this time, Jesus always pointed to himself as the way, the truth, and life. But he said, now the only shift that will take place is to point others to me, not yourselves. Disciples always point people to Jesus, not an opinion, not a church. We point people to Jesus. We point people to his word. That's what we're called to do. In some of the other gospels, we'll see the methods and method that he gave us in order to do that. So Jesus also told them to baptize in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let me go on record as saying true disciples recognize that water baptism is important to Jesus and is therefore significant to us in our spiritual journey. I've downplayed water baptism in the sense that I haven't really made a big deal out of it. I know that sounds horrible. And when this goes out on the radio, I know there's Baptist people that listen to me. They're going to choke on their coffee right now. I realize that. But the reality is water baptism is very important to the life of a believer because it was very important to Jesus. And his priorities need to be our priorities. And, and water baptism is more than a symbol. It's literally, when you read scripture, it's an entrance way. It's moving from saying, I have a belief and a faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior to the first thing he told disciples to do was to believe on his name and then be baptized in the water. And water baptism is an entrance way into a life of discipleship of following Jesus it's very important and so uh, what we're actually going to do as well uh, Jesus said baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and uh, on starting this Wednesday night for the next three Wednesdays we're going to break out why would Jesus give us that it's more than just a formula When you're baptized into the name of someone in their culture, it was a very powerful statement. And for the next three weeks, we're going to break out what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, what it means to be baptized in the name of the Son, and what it means to be baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. So if you're interested in that, that's going to be the next three Wednesday nights here in the sanctuary starting at 6.30 for our Bible study prayer service, okay? So disciples make disciples. Disciples... Uh, are water baptized, but Jesus went on to say, teaching them to obey. Disciples live lives of obedience and teach others to do the same. I think the most overused, misappropriated term that even we use in the church is, you can't judge me. Actually, yes, we can, and you can judge me. We're actually told not to judge the world. We're told to judge one another in accordance and in line with God's word. So Jesus said, and I'm not talking about standing back saying, you know, I'm going to judge Jim because, you know, this. It it all comes back to being accountable. And remember, we do everything in love. But Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. We have to point people to obedience in Christ. Right? Matt, I can't judge you for the decisions you make. But I can certainly come to you and say, Matt, your life is out of line with what God's word clearly declares. And then, love and respect him, but judge his actions according to God's word. And he has the right to do it with me. And again, let's not be unbalanced and start going all around, but in relationship and in the context of of, uh, accountability. We have to teach people to obey. 
And I think that's something we're afraid of even to do because, uh, you know, we've so individualized our faith and the world's pressured us so much to just leave them alone and yet Jesus said teaching them to obey. There is an obedience that's required by the people of God. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. If they love me, you will obey me. So are you still all okay with me? So, and he finally said, I am with you. Disciples know that no matter how rough it gets, he is with us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he is the one who empowers us every moment. So thank God for that. So the next place we see the Great Commission is found in Mark 16, 15 to 18. It's the same commission, but Mark highlights some different things that Jesus said. It's, they're, they're not contradictory, It'd be just like if you heard a story and I heard a story and something gripped you and something grips me differently under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Each writer uh, released that which the Holy Spirit stirred their heart. So Mark 16. Are you still with me? Okay. <laughs> we're not an amen church. We're a mm-hmm. Mm, that was good. Mm. I don't know if it's because we like food, so that's how we respond, or if we're just lazy. Instead of amen, mmm. But we'll go with that, okay? He said to them, go into all the world and preach good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. So Mark records that when we go into the world, and that's exactly what we're going to do when we leave here today, we preach the good news that Jesus saves. And he, has an, he puts an emphasis on faith and believing in water baptism. But Mark goes on and records something else that Matthew hasn't revealed to us yet that he didn't touch on and Jesus said that for those who believe these miraculous supernatural signs of protection spirit baptism and power to heal the sick and power over uh, the demonic realm will accompany us Mark said to those who believe notice that Jesus said that it's those who believe and are baptized. And Matthew already laid out for us that it's disciples that believe and are baptized. And so let's just cut to the chase right now and say that signs and wonders, power over the enemy, power to heal the sick, uh, power to be baptized in the Holy Spirit isn't for those that are, do the work of full-time ministry. It is for every believer that is baptized, baptized in the Spirit, and is going out in Jesus' name, which is every disciple. These signs will accompany. So every follower of Christ is being commissioned to share the good news, which, by the way, is the testimony of Jesus. You have a story. The, the story starts with what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. But you have a story, what Jesus did in your past, who, Jesus, what, who he is to you now and what you're trusting him in the future. Your testimony is the good news of what Jesus has done in your life. And you don't need to give it all at once, 
But as you are with people and you have opportunities to share, just like Donna said this morning, opportunities to pray. Signs and wonders came. Someone sat up and has taken notice of her Jesus. That's preaching the good news. That's sharing the gospel. And that's having the power to back it up. That's not the job of just the church. That's the job of Donna as a disciple. She testified to that this morning. You're tracking with me? It's interesting. I was interested in the word accompany because there's a teaching within the body of Christ and it's actually shrinking, but there's a teaching in the body of Christ that we shouldn't expect those things. However, the word accompany means to proceed alongside, to go with, to follow. It's the sense of a companion that travels alongside. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if you're walking down the road, down the street, and that person's accompanying you. And so Jesus told the disciples, as you go out into your world, these signs will be your traveling companions. Every time you share the message, you have these signs, the ability to heal the sick, take authority in prayer over the enemy. He says it should be part of our lives. We should never expect to have a proclamation without a demonstration. Because the word accompany means that you're joined to the hip. You can't have one without the other. It is your companion. Are we understanding that? So, how could Jesus send us out as his disciples, mandated to carry on his mission and work, if he didn't give us the ability to do what he did? My friends, you and I should expect to have a supernatural life. The miraculous should come alongside our testimony of Jesus. When we tell people he delivers, we can back it up. When we tell people he saves and heals, we should be able to pray for them. And that's why we're doing the Roger Sapp weekend. Because Roger Sapp's ministry is equipping the church to say, Penny, you have the ability to heal the sick. It's in you. Tim, you have the ability to heal the sick. He is in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. We were talking in our board meeting just about what it means to live a supernatural life. We've got to get out of our head the damage that church and crusades and revivals have done to, to the belief that we can take that power out with us in our daily lives. Because for most of us, the healing ministry, the power ministries, the proclamation ministries have come alongside a lot of hoopla. And that's okay but, you know, we see people getting healed for, and there's a lot of outward demonstrations, a lot of Pentecostalism that goes along with it again. That's okay. If people get healed and the Spirit's moving, I, I'm not going to criticize it. Careful, right? But I know, I, I know for me, growing up as a kid, I used to say stuff like, I'm not going to yell and scream and spit and smack people if I have to pray for them. You don't have to. You don't have to. And that's what... That's why I'm excited about bringing Roger Sapp in. You know what? He's just a guy that the power of God flows through with no fuss, just faithfulness of God, healing bodies. It's, it's like the story I heard in Mark Batterson's book. This is what it means to have a supernatural life. There's a woman, I think she lived in Chicago, works with homeless people. She was getting up one morning to go down to the mission where she works, and she felt the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the author. He's the empower for everything supernatural. So the Spirit of God said, uh, grab your wool socks, put them in your purse. She thought about it for a second and went, okay. Holy Spirit can tell me to do whatever, and I'll do it. She put it in her purse, went down to where she works, 
and she found a prostitute, and it was the winter, prostitute out on the front steps near where she worked, half freezing, just laying there unconscious. She calls 911, she leans down, wakes the prostitute up and says, I'm here, sweetheart. The ambulance is on its way. I'm going to take you to the hospital. It's okay, don't be afraid, I'll be with you. She said, but is there anything that you need in the moment? And the first words out of the prostitute's mouth were, I just wish I had woolen socks, my feet are freezing. And the girl pulled them out. And the prostitute says, they even match my outfit. How did you know? <laughs> True story. That's, that's supernatural ministry. It, it's not all the... It's you in your workplace. And somebody says, man, I'm hurting right now. And you say, let me pray for you. And when you're done just quietly praying, they say, man, I could feel a peace. I just feel a peace. And you say, that's Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and I'll keep praying for you. And you're just pointing, deflecting it all back to Jesus. Amen? That's the supernatural life. Luke 24. This is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. As unpopular as the subject of sin and the need to repent is, Jesus, Luke re recorded that Jesus said, repent and believe. And, and Jesus came because people need a Savior. Amen? We're saved from something by someone because we couldn't save ourselves, and that's the message of the good news. The message of the good news, we can never go out in the world and tell the world, we're better than you. No. No. We are just people that came to realize that without Jesus, we're nothing, but with Jesus, we have everything because of what he has done. The answer to our need is the cross of Jesus Christ. And I really believe that a person who has only invited Jesus into their heart but has never come to a place of repentance and realized, I fall short of the glory of God. My sin has kept me away from the table and the goodness of God. But man, there's a provision in the shed blood of Jesus when he died in my place. So Jesus, I repent. I turn and I'm going to live in a different way. I'm going to live in the grace that you've given me. That person is saved and that person is born again. I'm not sure that a person that says, come into my heart, Jesus, and then goes on with the rest of their life life like nothing ever happened really is you know a true disciple of Jesus has come to grips with how amazing grace is because they've turned from their sins and repented because Jesus has made forgiveness available let me go back to that statement about about judging one another if we're always dealing with each other in light of that principle how amazing his grace has been to me. We will never judge harshly. We will always judge in a way that says, Matt, there's something better for you, man. And then Matt can come to me next week and go, Jay, there's something better than this, man. Does that make sense? Only a person that has realized the gravity of their sin can truly, truly accept others and not... not be haughty towards others. Does that make sense? But it starts with the realization 
that there's sin and repentance. So a disciple is a person who has repented because they've recognized their sin, and we tell others the same. Luke is the first gospel writer to explicitly record Jesus as commanding the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they've been clothed with power from on high. He called it the promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And 10 days after Jesus gave this command and went up to heaven, 120 of the disciples, Jesus' followers, and Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters and family, they were in a, just an upper room, an apartment room, second story room, and the power of the Holy Spirit fell. And the Bible says that they all spoke in new languages and they went out into the streets and thousands were added to the church that day, the birth of the New Testament church. My point is this, is that I truly believe that disciples of Jesus Christ are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because if we are ever going to fulfill the ministry that Jesus has for us, where we proclaim the gospel, we're loving people. Jesus also told us that when we go out in the world, we're to turn the other cheek. We're to do good to those who misuse us. We're to love our enemies. How many of you know you need the power of the Holy Spirit to do all those things? Right? And that these signs would accompany us. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is the entranceway into that power. Jesus said, do not leave the city until you've been clothed with power. So these water-baptized, commissioned disciples were clothed in power to accomplish a supernatural task. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. So if we're going to come to terms with what Jesus has commissioned us to do, we have to come and submit to the provision he has given from the Father for us to fulfill that. And the baptism in the Holy Spirit, again, is something we're going to specifically look at in the next few weeks. John 20, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, and they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. When Jesus breathed on them, they received the Spirit of God. They were the first people in the history to ever receive the indwelling presence, the, the regenerating, life-transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. If you have come to Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, and you're a believer today, the same things happened to you. The Bible says that you've passed from death to life. Your old life, born into sin, brokenness, death, has now been transformed and made you're a new creation these were the first people to ever experience that and then jesus follows it with a statement that's been quite controversial he says if you forgive anyone their sins they're forgiven if you do not forgive them they're not forgiven now can i just say this where you find a statement that's hard to get your head around in scripture you've got to start to interpret it in light of what all the other scriptures say, and you can't find anywhere in the Old and New Testaments where God ever confers the right on any individual to either release or withhold forgiveness. You know, I could say to Penny, Penny, you're not forgiven, and Penny can look at me and go, oh, that's what you, doesn't matter what you think, right? Because I don't have that authority. So what was Jesus saying there? Again, in light of scripture, and in light of the Great Commission, he was saying, go into the world and preach the gospel, teaching them to obey all things that I have taught. And so the Bible tells us that by the fruit of people's lives, we can actually tell if they have made this real decision. So he wasn't saying that we can withhold forgiveness from people, but Jim can say, oh, I'm a Christ follower, and we can look at his life and say, but we don't see it because it's not lining up with Scripture. 
So you're not forgiven. And you say, well, that sounds kind of rough. But again, do we want people to sit in their delusion? Or do we want to lovingly bring them to the place where we say, you need to be in a place where you're ready for his appearing, where you're ready to appear before him. And so in the context of the Great Commission, the Bible was telling us that our authority to make that call about whether we really believe people are saved or not comes from the word of God. It doesn't come from any man-made rules or interpretation. If God's word declares that a person who continues in their sin is not saved, then we have to declare the same. By the fruit, we'll know them. And again, it just gives us, I'm not being, it gives us something to work with. You know, I really was gripped with this statement about a year ago. Someone had said that Christian parents need to stop making statements about their kids while they're good kids. You never find that in Scripture. None of our kids' friends will ever stand before God and go, yeah, you know, hey, they're good kids, Lord, let them in. Only by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be harsh this morning, but we need to be gripped with the reality. Heaven is real, hell is real, and one day, the Bible says there's only, there's only those with Christ, those without Christ. I think it's a burden that needs to keep us up at night. Jesus said, that we can tell if they've been forgiven or not by the fruit of their lives, all right? And so next, in the next few weeks, we're going to expand on that. Believer, disciple, true or false conversions. That's going to be a fun one, Jim. Some of you are going to go, yeah, what week's that? I'll stay home and listen to Joel Olstein. Acts 1.8, finally, final... Final one. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, Jesus never gave any distinction about the message that we're to preach. He never gave any distinction about the signs and wonders that would follow our lives. He never gave any distinction about whether we should be water baptized, spirit baptized or not. All of those things, every single one of us have in common. Whether you are, you know, Franklin Graham, uh, you know, who's touched the world with the message of the gospel. Whether you're Jay Black, who has the privilege of sharing it with you every week. Or whether you're Jeff, who goes in and makes false teeth and shares it with the people that he works with. And I'm being serious about that. There's no distinction. The only distinction is where we go with it. It's the only distinction. So in other words, Jeff should expect the same supernatural life, the same proclamation through his life that I expect when I preach. The opportunities might be different. The way they manifest will be different. But, but he should expect to have the same power and the same authority and the same flow of the Spirit's life through him that I do. That's just a fact. So he needs the same spirit, the same anointing, the same baptism that I need. The only difference is where we go. Jesus said in Judea, most of you will go to your Judea, your schools, your workplaces, your communities, your neighborhoods. Others will go to Samaria. That's kind of like what I did. I'm from Ontario, and I go to churches in Ontario and uh, minister God sends others over national borders. And so where we go with the gospel message and the signs accompanying, it differs. But everything else is the same. I need to say that again. The missionary 
who is standing right now in the Ukraine or in Africa and is watching people's lives who have been tormented by the demonic realm and preaching the gospel and seeing people get saved and watching the flow of the Spirit into their lives. His calling and mandate and power, it's, it's, the calling is different, okay? But the mandate and the power and the provision and the message is the same as what God has placed on you. And that is what, that is what we've got to come to grips with. I'm not, I'm not saying there's not an office and a, a greater responsibility before God for those of us who are called into the ministry. There is. But again, I may, I may never, Roger Sapp may never have the opportunity to come by the hospital bed or to the workplace where you are when someone needs healing in the moment, but you are there with the same provision, the same mandate that we have. Make sense? So that's where we're going in the next little while. And uh, you are the church. And I am the church. God has brought us together to accomplish his work here in Corona, Sarnia, and Lambton County. He is fitting us together to accomplish his work because he's building his church as we proclaim the kingdom. When I first really surrendered my heart to Jesus at 17 and then became aware of the calling on my life. I knew I was called to the ministry almost my whole life and I fought it almost my whole life up to that point. But that's not what I'm referring to. I, I came to grips at 17. The Lord came to grips with me that it didn't matter if I, I was going to be a youth worker in high schools. So that's what I wanted to do. Or, or if he was going to call me into the church or call me to be a missionary or, or even call me back into the secular world. That's not what I'm referring to. I came to a point when I was a teenager that I realized there is a calling on my life to share Jesus wherever I go. And when that calling became real on my life, I started to see people differently. I started to share Christ with people. I started to pray with people uh, in the workplaces we were at. And it was like a burning in my soul. Does that make sense? I saw people so differently. And, and sometimes I miss those days. But I believe God is calling me back to just the simple truth that everywhere I go, I bring the aroma and the presence and the essence of Jesus with me. Everywhere I go. And every person I come into contact with, I need to just be quietly waiting on the Holy Spirit, even as we're busily going about life, saying, Spirit of God, is there something you would do through me today? And the same is true of you. So I'm just going to close with something. There was a song in those early days that the Lord really used to sum up that calling on my life, and it's outdated, and so I'm not going to play it. I'm not even going to pretend that my music's cool anymore because it's not. It was written by a guy named Randy Thomas who actually toured with Shania Twain for years, but he actually uh, was in a band Allies and wrote Butterfly Kisses with Bob Carlyle. So I've turned off a whole other segment of you right there. It's a song called Send Me. And honestly, it's, it stirred my heart. I remember the first time I heard it as a teenager. I just went, God, that's the cry of my heart. So I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to close in prayer, okay? It says, When the fields are white with grain, and laborers are few, 
Send me when you need someone. Till the work has all been done, I'll be serving you. Send me. Send me to the hearts that have been broken, so that when your word is spoken, the wounds will start to mend. Send me in the power of your spirit to the ones that need to hear it, so the healing can begin. And he goes on, the battlefield is far away, warriors are few. Send me to defend the faith till the wars have all been won. Lord, I'll be serving you. Send me. And then the bridge says, the world is dying day by day. You're the only cure. I think I can show the way. How can I be sure unless you send me? Folks, it's your commission, and it's my commission. And I, I just know, here's my, here's my prayer for you this morning. I, I'm not concerned if you like this message or not, if it was eloquent or not. I just hope that there's a willingness in each one of us as we leave today to say, Send me, Lord. It might be primarily to my family. There's no shame in that. If it's your family that needs Jesus, that's who you focus on. Send me, Lord, to my family, to my school, to my workplace, to my neighborhood. Lord, I'll I'll ball up my socks if I have to. I'll bring a meal to my neighbor who's sick. It doesn't matter. Whatever, Lord, send me. You you tell me how and I'll go. That's what I want us to leave with this morning. Can we just pray? Lord, here we are. Send us. And I do believe that there's a shift you're wanting to bring, not just to our church, but just to the church in these last days. It's a shift that I believe we've gotten away from as the church has become more consumeristic. It's become more of a production, an experience that people go to and then leave. Lord, we want to be the church because we are the church. Lord, there is no other, there's no plan B for our families, for our schools, for our communities. I still believe in an old rugged cross. We still need to be gripped that there is hope for lost people, Jesus. And that you truly are the way, the truth, and the life. You've shown that to each one of us. Now use us to go and proclaim that, demonstrate it, pray into it as we go out into the world today. Lord, we're willing. Send us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our message. If you'd like to learn more about Parkway Church, you can visit us online at parkway-church.com.